hope you're enjoying yourselves. Hope you're finding it as fascinating as I am. Um, we are now moving to the future, the future of transparency journalism. I'm very pleased that um, we've got some uh, big, big, big names um, from academia. But interestingly, of course, they are all um, people who were big names in journalism as well. So I think they've got a a unique perspective in terms of understanding the business, but also spending a lot of time thinking about the future of it, in fact, creating the future of it uh, by teaching future journalists. I'm going to hand over now. It's lovely to have Al Jazeera back with us. Richard Gisbert, who uh, presents, uh, I think, perhaps the best uh, TV programme about the media, Al Jazeera's Listening Post. Over to you, Richard. Thank you, Charlie. <clears throat> just uh, very quickly, wearing my Jazeera hat, I know we spoke about this earlier today. I just want to add a few words on the situation in Egypt with uh, our correspondents and our news team there. It's difficult sometimes not to appear to be self-serving uh, when we talk about the state of journalism in a country where 529 people have just received summary convictions and death sentences uh, because of uh, a single murder case. Uh, a judge telling the defense lawyers, warning them not to raise the Constitution in his court of law. When things like that are happening on that kind of scale, it does appear that we are focusing perhaps a little bit too much on the journalism, but I think what's happening in Egypt is so important, um, not just because of what it is, but because of what Egypt is. It's long been the most influential country in the Arab world. There's an expression there, Cairo writes, Beirut publishes, Baghdad reads. It's bad enough that this is happening in Egypt. We don't want to see it spill over the borders into any other Arab state. Uh, and we thank you for the support that you showed today through that photo opportunity. Um, on to the uh, topic at hand. We've got a great panel, Eric Newton. George Brock, Angela Phillips, Richard Sambrook. Um, you'll see their affiliations on your sheets. Uh, always good to reacquaint ourselves with the brief. Um, and um, what we're looking at, a new generation of journalists is emerging, finding fresh ways to hold power to account. What skills do they need? How will their work change? We bring, uh, and our news professionals and journalism educators are going to not necessarily debate, but certainly discuss the way forward. I've been in this business long enough uh, to know the days, uh, to have worked in the days where transparency in journalism was a term that we never heard. Transparency was things was a thing that we demanded of the institutions that we covered. Uh, but news organizations tend to be a little bit sensitive when they're asked to meet those same standards. I'm going to ask each of our panelists to speak for a few minutes about what uh, what they see in this discussion. Uh, after that, we'll discuss a little bit amongst ourselves uh, before throwing it open for your questions. Eric. Uh, thank you, Richard. I still have this, by the way. So um, I'm uh, a senior advisor at Knight Foundation, and we give uh, grants primarily in the United States to the communities where Jack and Jim Knight uh, owned newspapers in the Knight Ritter uh, group and uh, to journalism and, and media innovation. And we're a uh, leading funder of journalism education in the United States, and journalism education, we hope, has something to do with the future of journalism and the skill sets of future uh, journalists. Before working at the Knight Foundation, I was uh, the... Uh, chief content producer for the Newseum in Washington, D.C., which is the 
a journalism museum there. And before that, I was the managing editor of the Oakland Tribune in California. And when I was in, in Oakland, I wrote a book called The Open Newspaper. And at that time, we argued that uh, transparency is only one of a family of things um, that constitute general fairness in, 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 in covering the news. Fairness is a fundamental uh, ethical construct that you'll find in Society of Professional Journalist codes and other, and other codes. Um, but we said transparency by itself is, is really not that helpful, but it needs to be combined with all the other elements. Um, it, it's true that uh, certainly in the United States, uh, for almost the entire history of journalism, there's very little transparency. The, uh, the, the notion of the newsrooms was, you know, we, we produce the news, you consume it, and trust us. That just doesn't work in the digital age when pe- people can verify and clarify their own information and talk back to the news organizations. Uh, so transparency has become today a fundamental value, um, but I, I still think that it needs to be combined with the others. Uh, use of the objective method, giving the community voice, engagement with the community. I think all those things together are what make uh, journalism more trustworthy, uh, and it needs to be trustworthy if it's going to distinguish itself from uh, other forms of communication in, in the digital age. I'll give you a quick example. Uh, there was a, uh, there were two big political rallies uh, in the United States that I want to talk about. One was the inauguration of Barack Obama. Another was a, a rally by Glenn Beck on the right. Um, and, and in both cases, the people who were running the rallies uh, overestimated the crowds by something like 600%. It's interesting in both cases, even though the crowd sizes were dramatically different. Um, the, uh, there's a fellow who's the night chair of uh, uh, journalism at Arizona State named Steve Doig, and he is a crowd counter. And in both cases, he was hired by news organizations to look at the aerial photographs and apply the grid method for estimating the actual crowd size. And in, you know, in the Obama case, there weren't 5 million. It was more like 800 thousand and in the Glenn Beck case there weren't five hundred thousand, it was more like eighty thousand. Uh, and, and in both cases when the correct number came up he was uh, he was highly criticized, especially on the uh, uh, when when it came out that the conservative rally was was also uh, wrong. Um, and some news organizations rather than uh, actually taking the time to, to count the crowds, simply use the number that the organizers uh, gave, which is a you know, fundamental violation of verifying and clarifying, which is what we're supposed to do. So, um, you know, transparency in that case, it, is it really, uh, it, it really doesn't have to do with the with the uh, political beliefs of Steve Doig or the news organizations, transparency has to do with how do you count the crowd. So you have to combine transparency with the uh, objective method. 
And had Steve, um, had, they, had they published the photograph, published the, on the, in the infinite space of the web the methods that were used to count the crowd, people could have, uh, you know, done their own calculations and decided if that was accurate or, or not accurate. If they had created a forum to discuss it, if they'd engaged with the community about it, um, I, I think that would have been a better outcome than uh, here's the number, tr- trust us, uh, which apparently some news organizations are, 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 are uh, uh, not even, don't even want to get into the argument, so they didn't even want to use it. These, these things I'm talking about require different skill sets than, than we currently have, and journalism schools need to figure out ways to teach those. It requires, uh, you know, we have to use objective tools and techniques, and they're coming out in the digital world constantly now, but schools are not keeping up with how they're teaching them. And we have to be able to operate in open collaborative teams with a transparent philosophy, and that isn't the current culture at most news organizations. And we have to be able to engage communities, not just inform audiences. So we think at Knight Foundation that the best way to try to bring all these things to journalism education into the journalists of the future is something called the teaching hospital model, where uh, journalism students uh, and researchers and um, uh, technicians and professionals all working together um, do journalism in the way that I'm talking about, in the different way that I'm, uh, that I'm talking about. Thank you. George? Uh, Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is George Brock. I'm the professor and head of journalism at City University London. I was a newspaper journalist for a long time on The Observer and on The Times, and I'm the author of a book called Out of Print, Newspapers, Journalism, and the Business of News in the Digital Age. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to spare a thought for a moment for another group of people who are gathering this weekend to discuss the future of journalism and, I would think, very probably, transparency. Pierre Omidyar, the founder of eBay, and more significantly for this discussion, the founder and funder of the First Look group of websites who include Glenn Greenwald and Jay Rosen in their marquee names, Mr. Omidyar has invited a dozen experts on journalism to debate with him, including, for example, Clay Shirky, to debate journalism and its future. They are in a resort, or will be, in Laguna Beach in California. We are in London WC2, but we can probably beam them some helpful thoughts. I have two initial observations about transparency. One is I'm a little bit wary of phrases like transparency journalism if they are permanent, timeless aspirations to which everybody wants to aspire, even if they don't always achieve them. There's a Harvard professor who's written an entire book in favor of something that he chooses to call knowledge journalism. Now, what he means is that journalists should be more deeply specialist in their knowledge. But the phrase knowledge journalism just makes me wonder whether he thinks there are people wandering around with placards trying to promote ignorance journalism. Secondly, a reminder that transparency is a state of higher visibility, no more, no less, What matters is what people do with it and whether the higher visibility has value. 
Now, we're talking about transparency for journalists, and as somebody just remarked, journalists don't like transparency applied to themselves any more than anyone else does. And I won't labour the point, because Eric has already made it, that once upon a time journalism was rather like a stage production. It was prepared behind a curtain. Then at a given timed moment, the curtain rose on the play. It isn't like that now, because there is a degree of transparency and visibility. And over time, I think that is bound to improve ethical behaviour in journalism, improbable as that may seem at the moment. Some important changes take a long time to happen. Now, it's not just about interactivity. Let's not forget that one of the most important things which the ordinary consumer of news and opinion can do in the Internet age is instant comparison. I count the power of instant comparison as a form of transparency. And do not forget how fundamentally transformative that is to what consumers of news have. Once upon a time, journalists were really the only people who did instant comparisons of who'd done what on the same story. When Krishna Bharat, the young engineer at Google, began Google News, he immediately arrived very fast at a very basic and very, very important insight. He said, I've got these 600 things, and they're all basically copies of the same story. In a digital age, that can't continue. There will have to be differentiation because the power of comparison will eventually force newsmakers to do that. Specific ideas about how transparency will work well. Um, When I started blogging and writing about this, I said that it was really important that digital versions of news sites, whether they are legacy mainstream ones or others, should actually attach links, i.e. footnotes, to what they did. It was a terrible mistake for me to use the word footnotes. It conjured very small print lines at the bottom of the page. And what I mean by that is open sourcing. If you are a publication, let me just take as a random example the Financial Times, for for whom accuracy and integrity are very, very important operational values every day, it simply baffles me why they don't link to the sources which they can disclose. Clearly, in most forms of interesting journalism, there will be some sources that don't get disclosed, but there are actually lots that can be. And as I say, it baffles me, particularly in the legacy media, struggling in current, not to make advantage uh, of that. At the risk of starting a stampede out of the room, if you went to the parallel session on investigative journalism, you would hear a lady called Alice Ross talking on that subject. She works for the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, and I found full disclosure, I'm a trustee of the Bureau. Their project on drones and its sub-project, which is about the victims of drones and it's called Naming the Dead, is a project designed to be open entirely in its methodology from soup to nuts, from A to Z, from beginning to end. That seems to me to be the right kind of transparency Uh, in operation. Last point, be aware that the tools of transparency can also be used against journalists. Do not forget that when the NSA Snowden revelations began, those who wanted people to not worry about it too much said, don't worry, it's only metadata. 
Metadata being the technical expression for not the content of an email or a call, but who called who, when, for how long, or emailed. It, doesn't, it took me a shamingly long time to work out that if the authorities were collecting on a universal scale and retaining indefinitely all this information about all journalists, they could identify virtually everybody's source. And I think it's really important that this is tested legally in as many places as possible. I naturally hope it will be tested in the United States. And if there are any millionaires in the audience, it would be really good to have this tested at the European Court of Human Rights. I'll leave it there. Angela? Hello. Um, I'm, I'm Angela Phillips, and I run the Journalism MA at Goldsmiths College. Um, and I want to pick up on some of the things that have been said earlier which about what, what is the future for journalism. And I'm sure that all of us here in teaching journalism are very conscious of needing to be at the cutting edge. So I think what I would start by saying, when we, what we do at Goldsmiths is we are very conscious of the fact that you need to have a combination. You have to hang on to the old-fashioned values, of particularly of verification, you have to update the old-fashioned values of verification because verification in an online world with a lot of um, casual users is a very different game from what it used to be and we have to learn how to verify things when we don't know exactly who produced them. We have to add those old-fashioned values about verification, interrogation, good writing, incidentally, to new issues, which is about teaching cutting-edge me cutting methods of data collection. We are working now in collaboration with our computing department because we realise that as journalists, we don't have the deep enough knowledge of data to be able to use it intelligently. So what we're doing is we're collaborating with, co co with people in computing. They're learning our skills. We're learning theirs. We're trying to find a way of cutting across the two disciplines so that we can create a discipline for journalism of the, for the journalism of the future. We've also really pleased to um, report that we are, will in future be collaborating with the Centre for Investigative Journalism, which has just moved to Goldsmiths. It's moving in this week, and we'll be doing um, future training of, of data journalism training at Goldsmiths. Um, so that's how we see the future. We think it's really important. We are training young people to be the journalists of the future. And in one way, we already do it. We do understand about what it feels like to work online because we run our own online news organisation. So we have a constant sense of what does it feel like to be part of a news world in which collaboration is inevitable. You are constantly in touch with your audience. Your audience is constantly in touch with you. And running a news organisation from within a department of journalism is really hard. Um, takes a lot of effort, a lot of dedication, but it brings huge dividends because we have a real audience. We know how real audience audiences behave, and we're not just doing it for you know for pretend. But having said all that, I think there are other areas which we need to take on board and which, until recently, perhaps we haven't done enough. Now, I don't know. Oh, yes, it is up here. Um, something's come out really weird here. So it's come out double, that's right. And what I wanted you to look at here is what we're up against. And it seems to me that when we're talking about trust and tr transparency in this country, we have to recognise that we've lost trust particularly the press. Uh, if you can just go to the next slide. Um, 
you will find out that it's not quite so bad in television. We have got a certain level of trust. Um, but in print, but we have to say that in print journalism, when, when I talk about print journalism, I'm not simply talking about newspapers. Newspapers are still the go-to place for news. Certainly our news research, even looking at young people, shows that no matter where people are getting news from, if it's through Facebook or through Twitter or through other forms of social media, the main places they're going to, the main sources of news, are either newspapers or existing television services. So people are finding their ways to legacy media through different routes. But we've got a problem. And the problem is that we are... The level of trust is the lowest in Europe. The lowest in the European community is the level of trust in the kind of journalists that are absolutely core to the future of journalism. So my feeling is that future journalism and the transparency of journalism is all about how do we, as educators, how do some of you who are hopefully the would-be future of journalism rebuild trust so that our audiences think of us as being the place to go to get news that has been verified. We believe, if you ask journalists what they do, they say that we're better than bloggers because we verify everything. But we are not transmitting that that system, that understanding of that system to the people, our would-be audiences. So we have to get back in charge of what we do. And I think that means a number of things. I mean, certainly George has also already mentioned this, that one of the things we have to do is we have to use linking far more than we do. Most of the research into the use of linking shows that we are woeful at linking to our sources. And when I say linking to our sources, I absolutely take on board what George says. I do not mean linking to that private source that you have made with somebody who is, which is completely private between you and them and must stay that way. But I do think that every time you write, a, write something which is derived from a public document, and let's face it, an awful lot of journalism is, you should link to that document. And people don't. Indeed, very often on East London lines, my students don't. I'm constantly sending them emails saying, where are the links? Where are the links? Because without links, you have no way of tracing information. And that is one of the key ways that you can allow your audiences to check what you've written. They may not bother, or they may only bother to do it occasionally. But if on the occasions they do bother, they find that you have lied, have simply um, linked to something that is irrelevant, or that what you've written about totally misrepresents the paper you're writing about, then you will lose trust. But there are other ways in which we can... um, improve transparency. We should be publishing much more about how we're funded. We should be publishing lists about who pays us for the things that we do. Even down to, if you've got a ticket, if somebody paid your airfare, if you've got free entrance to something, like your... And I think this is just as important in consumer journalism as anywhere else. If you've just been given free entrance to two or three saunas then you should say you have, because why are you saying that those ones are better than anybody else's? So I think publishing details of payments is really important. I think tagging information for traceability is really important. I think we need to be looking for the ways in which it it is possible 
for people coming to a story to find out where that story began. And at the moment, you cannot do that through Google, and you cannot do it through most news organizations. We need to make data work for us. We need to make the internet and the, and, and the coding work for transparency journalism and not against it, because that's the way we will improve our status in the world. And I think we also need to relinquish to some extent our control of the narrative, mainly by allowing the right of reply. This, I know, in this country and certainly in America, is an extremely contentious issue. It seems to me that while we, while we, as the internet is now the where, place where all news is archived, and that is news, broadcast news as well as print news, it is not beyond us to offer rebuttal space underneath our stories. And I think that this is a serious matter. We should take it on board. If we allow our audiences to talk back to us, we will improve transparency and we'll improve the way in which journalists work. But I know I will be attacked. I've been attacked every time I've ever said that, but I'll go on saying it. Um, I'm going to pause you there, Angela, and maybe get Richard to jump in. And with that's his it. Introduction. Well, there you go. There we go. I just saw all those other papers. Uh, <laughs> don't, don't panic, Richard. I've only got go ahead, two bullet points. Uh, okay, I'm Richard Sandbrook. I'm um, professor of journalism at Cardiff University and a former uh, journalist, editor, and director of news at the BBC. Um, uh, you you won't, Angela, get attacked by me because I've been saying for ten years that um, journalism needs to be transparent and uh, lifting the bonnet on your journalism and showing how and why you've done it is as important as the in product itself, and I'll, I'll come back to that in a minute. I just want to make three brief points. great thing about coming last is all the, the major points have already made for you, so um, I'll say what I, what I agree with as I go along. But uh, on the question of you know, what are we actually discussing here, there are two ways of looking at it. There's transparency journalism as a label, which I'm uncomfortable with in the way that George is. I think it's really old-fashioned accountability journalism, uh, the fourth estate role of, um, of the media but perhaps taking into account some of the new tools and opportunities that are available around uh, transparency is an issue. But there are also new responsibilities that go along with that, and if the media is going to um, uh, push uh, other organisations and institutions to be more transparent, then it has to be more transparent itself, and frankly, uh, at the moment, it isn't. Um, I, I would say transparency is a vogue word at the moment. Um, you know, Who can be against it, you might say? Uh, I think there are some problems with it. Firstly, David Weinberger at Harvard coined the phrase, you know, transparency is the new objectivity, and I think we all now understand what he meant by that. But transparency alone is not enough. Um, I think you also have to have diversity of um, information and opinion and views. That's perhaps a whole different topic. But you also have to have evidence, and uh, one of my uh, big issues is evidence-led journalism, and that brings us back into the whole area that we've been discussing in the rest of today about data journalism, data science, and analysis and investigation. And there's certainly huge opportunities there. But it seems to me accountability journalism or transparency journalism, if you like, isn't just about... Um, the data issues. It's also about old-fashioned investigative journalism. Uh, it's about um, uh, the other forms of computer-assisted journalism which have been running for 20 years. Uh, it's about use of freedom of information and a whole range of other things as well. But transparency journalism, accountability journalism is obviously good, but go, going with that is the responsibility on the media to be transparent. Not all transparency is good, by the way. Um, you know, we're also involved in a, in a debate about the limits of uh, personal privacy, 
uh, and you know transparency to the extent that some uh, organizations force um, or sell on our online activity we may not want to be transparent about some of it uh, there are legitimate limits on transparency for a media organization if you're dealing with confidential sources and of course therefore there are also legitimate limits on transparency for other kinds of organization and we've hardly begun to really explore what some of those might be but at the heart of that comes the question of accountability accountability for uh, organizations, institutions, and accountability for the media. Second point, very briefly, last year I did a, a global survey of journalists from 50 countries around the world on attitudes to open government, and that's really, again, a tr big transparency movement on openness, freedom of information, access, and so on around the world. Uh, a whole range of things came out of it, but in terms of the media and news organizations, firstly, very clearly, most organizations still lack the skills and resources a, to use FOI legislation really effectively, but certainly to use some of the kind of computational skills and data science um, opportunities that are there. Also, media lack the openness that we've just been talking about. They also culturally lack um, uh, the um, uh, collaborative skills and the collaborative attitude that is increasingly important to pushing this kind of accountability journalism, that actually it's not all about scoops that we shouldn't, shouldn't let on to, to anyone else. Actually, collectively, by being a lot more open about your journalism, collaboratively, you can achieve a lot more. And that's something that I think is very little uh, discussed or, or recognized. Um, there was also, out of this survey, a lot of public ignorance about open government and freedom of information, so there's clearly a big job to be done. Uh, government was um, failing to live up to its rhetoric uh, around open government um, and therefore there's a big accountability job to be done and there's a big gap between government and the public about uh, freedom of information, transparency of information, a big role there for the media to play but as yet they're falling down uh, on the job I would say as a headline overall, not through um, bad intent but through lack of skills and lack of recognition of what they need to do. So finally that takes you to the skills question and I think um, part of it is cultural change, it's business of being open about your means and your methods and your motivations is very important for credibility and trust. The collaborative skills I mentioned briefly but I think overall a lot of this comes down to cross-disciplinary working and for those of us who are in universities it applies to, to us as well as we try to address these new issues. Um, you know, there's some great work that's going on in, in, in kind of data science and journalism and, you know, Paul Bradshaw who is here at Birmingham and City and I know work goes on at Goldsmiths. We're doing work in Cardiff and digital investigation and computational journalism and, you know, there's some cross-disciplinary work which is interesting but it's quite hard to get it to work and, and it's also quite hard to get it to work within news organisations as well where those old reporting and production and um, technical uh, barriers are also breaking down uh, and that's creating all sorts of management and editorial challenges as well. So these cross-disciplinary issues and cultural issues, I think, uh, are at the heart of it. And, you know, in, in, in the universities that we're all in, traditionally there are two divisors, the practice side of things and there's the research side of things. Uh, actually, there's something coming through the middle now, which is cross-disciplinary experimental. doesn't really fit any of the kind of constructs that exist, uh, either in media organisations or in, in training organisations, and that's the big challenge, I think, for all of us. We're going to get to audience questions in a minute, so um, think that through. <clears throat> Richard, just one um, thing I wanted to ask you. You're, you were at the BBC when the digital-slash-transparency revolution took hold. Um, without making your uh, answers necessarily about the BBC, because you will have spoken to other people in similar positions in other news organizations. Talk to us a little bit about how, how open the BBC was 
to this whole notion of transparency, how culturally resistant and uh, uh, adverse they were, and uh, if you can try to put it in the context of other news organization stories you've you've heard, things you've, you've seen. Yeah, uh, so a, a couple of things very briefly. Um, part of the work I did after 2004, where you will remember there was a bit of a car crash over the BBC's reporting of the misuse of intelligence in the run-up to Iraq, was to try to rebuild trust in the BBC. It didn't take much doing, actually, because trust didn't fall very much. But um, part of that was about saying the BBC has to be open about what it's doing and why and how. So there was a big push on that. And there was a cultural independence, uh, a cultural resistance in an organisation that is very hierarchical, very command and control in its culture and its DNA. So that's quite difficult to say, actually, accountability and openness needs to drive right through the organisation down, not just at programme level, but producer and reporter level as well. And I think that's still work that's ongoing. Uh, I remember as the digital opportunities came in, um, uh, I mean, I did try and run with that agenda a bit for for various reasons. And as blogging took off about um, 12 years ago... um, there was an initial resistance in the BBC, as there has been in many other media organisations. I think it's a very familiar story. People said, blogging's about opinion, and in the BBC we can't be about opinion, so we must make sure none of our staff blog. That was the initial uh, reaction, to which you say, well, it's too late, because an awful lot of them are. And by the way, how can an organisation that's about free speech and, is, and, and, you know, and in support of all those values say you mustn't do something... So actually, if they can stand up on air and speak, why can't they do it in a different platform? And you, know, you work through it and find some good examples and you get your political editor and your business editor blog and everyone likes it and they get a million hits and things. Oh, this is great, let's do more of it. So you get there eventually. Uh, and it was the same with social media. You know, what is this social media thing? Um, uh, actually, Facebook, you remember in the early days of Facebook, what was your political affiliation? And so the BBC said, we can't possibly have our staff having to fill in a box that indicates any political affiliation. We should say to them, a, a condition of your contract with the BBC is you're not on Facebook. To which the answer, my answer to them was, actually, if you go on Facebook, there are over 10,000 BBC staff on there already. That's 50% of the workforce. What are you going to do about that? Um, so there was a big, very steep learning curve. And the BBC is uh, not the only place that's like... No, so I, I mean, those are, those are real experiences and, and from, from BBC at that time. But I would say most media organisations went through something similar in that event learning curve. And that's also part of saying, look, there's a different relationship with the audience. There's a different way of behaving in this environment, which is more open, a bit more informal, a bit more relaxed... Um, uh, but you can still stay true to your core values and your core responsibilities and actually a different way of working may even support those a bit more. But it took quite a long time to break a mindset which came out of an old media oligopoly which was command and control, uh, the the stage show, as as George put it, prepare everything behind the scenes and then just show what you want to show. And say, actually, let's get rid of all the clutter and be a lot more open about everything. took quite a lot of doing, particularly in in a regulated environment like the BBC. I'm just going to throw this one at Angela to start, but and anyone else should feel free to jump in. Um, the notion of transparency, there's also a gimmick, gimmicky aspect to some transparency mechanisms. I remember a few years ago, I think it was the Seattle Post-Intelligencer, if I'm not mistaken, or some newspaper in the Pacific Northwest of the United States decided it would be a great idea to uh, have a webcam transmission of their editorial meeting every morning at 10 o'clock, which uh, I, I don't quite know. We d- I remember doing the story at the time. I don't know what happened to that, whether they lost their audience to sleep, uh, cynicism, or what have you. 
Do you see that as a gimmick or is that a start? And the other point I just wanted to make on links that you had mentioned, Angela, was this resistance to putting links to the information. I'm wondering if news organizations are afraid to do that because 93% of those links would take us straight to Wikipedia. Well, two things, I think. Microphone, microphone, Angela. Yeah, there are two things. I mean, there is one newspaper which will remain nameless, which, when you follow their links, do indeed take you to Wikipedia. Um, There is some research that indicates that, but I won't shame them. Um, Hopefully they've changed their ways by now. Um, I I do think that that a lot of it's gimmick. I mean, The Guardian started off by trying to do do collaborative... But partly because a lot of critics, a lot of academic critics of of big media talked a lot about about the the failure to relinquish the news agenda. So The Guardian, always being at the head of all these things, decided it would relinquish the news agenda and invite its audience to to join in in the morning in, in suggesting what what they should be covering that day. The audience was supremely uninterested. The audience was not interested in setting the agenda for the day, mainly because the audience didn't have at, the, at its disposal what the Guardians got. So they kind of gave up. It was, a, it was a silly idea. But having said that, I was talking to the featured editor of Company magazine, a, a young women's magazine, who did indeed do a complete kind of transparent issue in which they got audiences to join in and they found it hugely successful. So I think that you find that transparency journalism will work in that that level of it, that level of, of involvement will work around very specific issues. But it doesn't work on a general everyday basis. And I think with a lot of things at the moment, it's people are, it, it what's fun about it is that you try everything out and see what works. Um, but getting your audience to set the news agenda we've discovered doesn't work. Bad idea. I think we've got to be really clear what we mean operationally by transparency journalism. We've got very used to the idea that sources for journalism are wider and richer, whether you want to call it citizen journalism or crowdsourcing or what. But some things that consumers of news value are a different form of collective editorial intelligence they are that organization, that editorial organization, weighing something up. I'm thinking, for example, I've just spent more than a week in the States and I've been reading an awful lot of reporting in the American media about Flight 370, as everybody probably has. Now, where there is a story that the number, where the facts are very small in quantity and the speculation is, by comparison, enormous, the stuff that you, over time, get to prefer reading is the stuff that weighs it up. I actually don't want to spend, because I was on the road, I was very busy, I didn't want to spend a lot of time working out, or or indeed even comparing rival versions of the story. I just looked for the best weighed story. And if what one editorial organization has done is weigh it very carefully and collectively agree their version, do you then want people who disagreed with that version doing a lot of tweeting saying, actually, I think our version is crap. I just put that question out there. Eric, uh, you talked about skill sets. Journalism schools need to teach different ones. Presumably that means that people who are mid-career uh, may need to go back to school in, in a manner of speaking. 
Talk to us a little bit more about specifically what kind of skills you're talking about. Well, I think different examples have already uh, been mentioned. Uh, I, I think one thing is journalists should learn to code. Uh, why? Because regular people can't do it. And because the news machines of the future are going to be algorithms and software and news bots, and not only do you know, need to know how to code, you need to know how to understand other people's code, or you can't interrogate an algorithm or interview a news bot. And, and so how hard can the, uh, is this? Oh, my God, we're word people. We can't possibly know anything about math. That's just not true. That's our mythology. And maybe it's true of a certain generation. But young people today, including many people in this room, learn a lot of things that no one has to teach them. Um, I have two young boys, and maybe not so young anymore, who learned to code on Code Academy, and nobody needed to teach them in college. So I, I really think that uh, numeracy is a major skill that, uh, that journalists of the future have to have. We have to be able to understand big data. We have to be able to understand uh, how technologies work. We need to be able to be comfortable with learning new technologies every day. You know, there are lists of new tools that come out every week, and the fear factor uh, among uh, uh, journalists in my generation, it can take us six months to try to do, use a new tool that only takes ten minutes to learn. But we didn't know that. And so being comfortable with just as a routine course of what you do, learning new methods every day, the same way that the news changes every day. And working in open collaborative groups, the notion that a journalist is supposed to stare at the paper until droplets of blood form on your forehead, uh, it, it, the lone wolf idea of the writer and the journalist is, 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 is a 20th century notion or even a 19th century notion. And the, the, the idea of today's journalists being able to work in open collaborative groups, being able to graduate from a university and join a startup and be part of a team, a five-person team, with a, with a technologist and a business person, and, and be the content person. And finally, I, I think that uh, really we're going to need to shape the journalists of today, uh, the, the graduating today, are going to need to shape social and mobile media, because every generation grows up with a new form of media and ascendance and it is up to that generation, not us, the young generation, the generation that grows up with the new media, to shape uh, that media and its its popular its popular use. Anyone else on skills? Um, I'm going to have one more question for the panel, but let's have hands for questions now, and we'll get mics, a microphone here. Uh, so these two hands here, and we'll put the second mic over there. Um, I'm going to throw this at anybody. Um, how much of this transparency, I mean, because if you want to go back to the beginning of the story of transparency in digital journalism, I'm wondering whether the comments section is uh, sort of patient zero, because the news organizations wanted to have that feedback, they wanted to have that engagement, that, that interactivity, and then they had all kinds of problems in dealing with it. Uh, and we did a piece a few weeks ago on how you have all these moderators who sit in a house in Croydon, perhaps working for the San a newspaper in San Francisco, moderating comments to keep things under control, to keep the trolls at bay, 
and all that stuff, and to, to the point where popular science recently has dropped its comment section altogether because all these climate change deniers are out there fighting good science with a bunch of either uh, sponsored science or mythology. So any thoughts on comment sections, the role they have played, where they're going, um, good thing, bad thing? Uh, well, so I'm not sure that's the same issue in a way, Richard. I mean, there's definitely a lot of issues around comment section and about the need for moderation. I think that, that simply means that, you know, you need some professional moderation and... Um, yeah, no, but uh, just but, uh, comment sections as perhaps being some, one of the initial drivers of where we are. Yeah, I suppose, well, I suppose it, it, it was um, one of the early um, kind of canary-like signals that, you know, life in, on the open in web is very different from life behind closed production systems and, and you know, that there are all sorts of issues that come up you have to deal with. But, I mean, I just to kind of move it back to the whole point about you know, total transparency is not straightforward. You know, I mean, anyone who's delved into um, data journalism and data science, and there are people far better qualified than me in, in, the, in the room about it, knows that, you know, simply because you've got a whole bunch of data doesn't mean actually you've got, got the story or that the data's right or that the data's telling you what you think it's telling you. So, you know, it comes back to what I said before, that there are some basic fundamentals behind all this. It's, there's new tools, there's new opportunities, there's new techniques, but basically... You know, core journalistic disciplines and practices uh, uh, in the in the in the service of you know accountability journalism, whatever you want to call it, still holds true. We can we can use data science and we can use numeracy and we can use other tools and so on, but the fundamentals of what you're trying to do and finding the story and telling it uh, don't don't change. It's a lot more complicated in an open digital environment than it was in a closed environment. But that's you know we're learning that very quickly. I think. I think that. Uh what most newsrooms have discovered about com comments in the digital age is a very old truth, which is about the ratio of signal to noise. And most newsrooms, I think if you had their editors on truth drugs, would say that in most of the digital comments, the ratio of noise to signal is very, very high. There's... Uh we're just at the beginning of all of this, and so I think it's I don't agree that we should draw general conclusions based on some really bad commenting systems that we've tried to implement so far. I mean, there aren't sophisticated systems, there aren't uh, uh, enough voting up and down systems, there are not enough toggling systems where you can toggle back and forth between anonymous comments and people who use their real names who tend to say far more sensible things. And uh, there are a hundred other things that could be done to improve uh, commenting systems, and, and will be. I mean, I think the reason that it's hard is because we're so bad at it, and we didn't do it. And, you know, the newspaper prints ten letters, and now the newspaper gets 10,000 emails. Doesn't know how to, to cope. But we're just at the beginning of it, and I think that the systems will continue to improve. I think there's some quite interesting, just to add a couple of things, um, I, I used to contribute quite a lot to comment is free and like every other woman involved in any kind of comment system um, the one thing you discover very quickly is that you are just you are an immediate attractant to, to trolls and abuse and one of the things that I often wonder is what I, I, I would like to trace back that discussion which said that people should comment um, anonymously because I do think that transparency of commenters would help quite a lot in getting much, getting a rather more more interesting debate 
where people were actually saying, this is me, this is what I believe, this is what I want to contribute. And I think that if we'd started that way, we might have had a rather different situation from the one we've, we now found ourselves in, where, where too many people have been, uh, have been kind of overwhelmed by the, a very, in fact, tiny percentage of their audience. And it is a tiny percentage. It's about um, 0.1% of the audience that actually gets involved in commenting. And I mean, you see huge resources being put into that tiny part of the audience, whereas the other resources could be used more intelligently, I think. And I think we need to think about this to bring audiences in a way which would actually help journalism rather than just become an irritant to all concerned. Now, the reason I said toggling is because in some countries, using your real name is a great way to get killed. So, so you know, I think it's it's... I don't think we've worked out all the details yet, but I, if I were running a, a news site today, I would have the default mechanism be that the anonymous ones are off, yeah. and you would have to consciously turn it on in order to get it. All right. Uh, we're going we're gonna to do three questions at a time here, so it's going to be one, two, and then three. Um, and I think there was a young, young woman up, had a hand up. or Okay, they've did, oh, here she is. There you go. Let's start here, and then we're going to go there, and then we're going to go back up there, and we're going to try to take them on three at a time. Thank you. Uh, first of all, tell us uh, who you are, what you do, and then throw the question at us. And if we could keep it brief, it would be good. Okay. Kat Chamberlain, freelance journalist um, from the States. And um, uh, first of all, I think in transparency, I think universally uh, everybody agrees that it's very important. And uh, I think Wikipedia recently, um, although not a journalistic organization, they opened out their process of how everything's put together and found out that 80% of their uh, writers, authors, editors uh, are men. So by opening up, they, they try to address their institutional problem, like an internal problem, and it's very, very useful. But if I can play devil's advocate um, to point out two potential side effects to see how you um, address the transparency problem. The first one would be um, the appearance, to try to give appearance of transparency. I don't know if sometimes you bang backwards and then there are unintentioned uh, consequences. I, I'm thinking about Iraq and Afghanistan war, and the journalists were embedded. So by doing that, I think the, the military, along with the journalists, um, we're trying to say this is now a, a, a war that every, for all to see, we will track everything, but we all know how that turned out. And then I think New York Times had to apologize among, among some uh, media outlets because it turns out that they were too close to the soldiers or the, to the, the uh, it just didn't end very well. And then another potential problem is uh, um, sometimes a snapshot um, of transparency could be out of context. I'm thinking the climate panel, um, when the email was uh, leaked about how scientists are talking about, almost joking about, saying maybe it's not so real or true. Or, um, and also when uh, uh, WikiLeaks came out, the diplomats were talking about um, now the, the way they talk about things could not be understood by the general public. And now a lot of contacts or relationships were affected. So I'm just wondering, that too, very troubling question. I'm sorry, it's a lot. Questions need to be briefer. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, I'm Kyle Bowen. I'm a master's student here. Um, you've all mentioned the issue of transparency of funding. 
And when, right about the time Glenn Greenwald was leaving The Guardian, a lot of this was talked about with uh, Pierre Omidyar's new venture, how it's going to be funded, et cetera, and potential sources of bias. These all seem like fair questions, but it seems to me these aren't often raised about mainstream media in the U.S., like MSNBC or Fox News and the New York Times. Do you agree that these questions aren't raised uh, as much in those, uh, uh, on those uh, media outlets? And if so, why do you think that might be? Okay. And the third question is uh, – go ahead. I'm Julius Baluto. I'm a journalist based in London. Um, my question reflects on news reporting in times of uh, crisis or breaking news. Um, according to statistics, late, late in 20, sorry, uh, the 1st of July bombing of London, if you remember, BBC used a lot of user-generated content. And, uh, and it formed a big chunk of its news reporting. So my question was, how do you, uh, how, how does transparency in journalism reflect on the use of user-generated content? Because you know, it's instant. It, it, you may not have enough time to verify. And you want to show people something happened in London, we got the pictures. I agree with you when you say it's not about scoop, but sometimes when it comes to competition in media houses, you cannot help getting, you cannot get away from just focusing on that. So how does transparency in journalism reflect on the use of user-generated content? Why don't we talk about 7-7, Richard? You were there at the time, Richard. Yeah, so um, briefly on 7-7, the BBC's main evening news at 6 o'clock led its program with a, a long package which was entirely um, user-generated pictures. Uh, it was the first time that that had ever happened. Uh, and 7-7 for the BBC was a moment where it really recognised that it had to uh, invest in user-generated content substantially more than it had done to date. It's always... UGC and it had been sort of building up and, and thinking about citizen journalism but 7-7 was a key moment uh, in terms of the kind of transparency issue of it, um, so I'm about five years out of the BBC but you know, when I left the position and I think it's still the case is it has a dedicated uh, desk of I think about 10 to 12 people 24 hours a day who are simply dealing with incoming material in UGC and part of their job is to verify any of it before it's used so um, the BBC position on it is if you see any citizen-generated pictures or UGC material on the BBC, it will have been independently verified as being what it pertains, pretends to be or says it is in terms of play on the back of this need for news organisations to be able to do that, whole expertise and body of expertise, and there's another session uh, uh, at this conference about it. You know, there's a, here, there's a big kind of um, uh, uh, depth of expertise around how you do that, but the crucial thing, uh, and actually it applies at all levels, is attribution. So if you're not sure and you can't independently verify it, at least attribute it. And that's, I think, part of the – also, by the way, the issue over breaking news and the whole race you get into between um, broadcasting and print and the web and social media about breaking news and who's first and all the rest of it. And lots of news organisations get into trouble because they trip over themselves in trying to be first – Actually, if they're just open about attributing it, we have this, it comes from here, this is why we think it's worth showing you, this is what we know about it and this is what we don't know about it, then the viewer is entirely clear and up alongside the editors, they're making the judgments and there's no problem. Problems come when these organisations overreach and overclaim and overstate. So, you know, being showing a little more humility and being a little more open about what the material is and what the genesis of it is and what's known and what isn't known about it 
actually solves all of those problems and there's a big investment and, and expertise building around that. On this? Could I just add, on a slightly more kind of perhaps slightly banal level, um, we covered for the last four years or so we on, on East London Lines, our own website, we, we've been live blogging events, mainly such like, like, certainly like the student demonstrations. And one of the things that we've done is we've, we've actually developed our own protocol whereby when we're, when we're monitoring Twitter for information that's, that, that's coming in, we have a special tag which is rumour mill so that we will always flag up information that looks interesting but hasn't been verified. We will flag it up on our live blog, say, you know, rumour mill, we've heard this, we are now going to verify it. So we will then make sure that our student journalists don't just take it at face value and republish it, but then they go and check. And that means that they're learning in the context of very fast-moving news um, to try and evaluate what's happening, not to miss the, not to lose the initiative, because obviously, if, you're, if you are live blogging, if you are working in real time, you do have to be fast. But what we would say is, yes, say you've heard this, but make it very clear that you don't know if it's true. Then go away and check afterwards. And I think that that's, you know, there are ways around this, and there are ways of dealing with it, and we're all learning them. Eric's going to talk a, a second about transparency in media funding, but just on that question and unverifiable video, we did a piece a few years ago on the Listening Post because the BBC took a decision that it would no longer use any NGO video out of Africa. So if Save the Children or CARE was working in Somalia or working uh, in Ethiopia, uh, the BBC made a decision that they weren't going to use that video because, and they made a very good academic argument saying that you know, just because there's an aid organization here and not in another country where the suffering can be just as bad. We can theoretically, academically say that it's, that, that, that it's the wrong thing to do. What was disheartening was we disagreed with that policy from the start uh, because I didn't think it worked on the ground. And, but then we saw out of the Arab Spring and out of Syria and out of 7-7 all this unverifiable material that the BBC was quite happy to offer disclaimer in front of and a qualifier in front of. And they put that on the air because they got ratings from it. And I don't know if their policy on, on Africa and NGO video has changed. I think every time they run unverifiable video out of Syria, they should think about that. Go ahead, Eric. On the question of uh, transparency and media ownership. Oh, wait. Don't I get to bash the BBC also? You do that, too. <laughs> the, there are can, NGO- I, can I do that, too? Is that sure. No, I'll defend it. <laughs> there, are, uh, there are NGOs in the United States with information ethics that are higher than journalism information ethics. Human Rights Watch, Witness, they, the, what the, because this is, their entire, this is their entire business just, just as it is ours. And so when you look at what they go through to verify something, in fact, we just gave a grant not too long ago to Witness to develop a verification software for video. To be able to to be able to get at least a a, a beginning idea of be uh, because they're not on deadline. Well, there you go. And so, I mean, to 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 ban the potentially most accurate stuff is uh, pretty backwards. Anyway, um, on transparency of funding, uh, Pew uh, researchers recently did a um, well, maybe a year or two ago did a did a, a study of the nonprofit news uh, sites in the United States and we have this phenomenon of as the commercial local commercial news has contracted 
nonprofit news sites, tax-exempt news sites, have, have begun to proliferate. And it turns out that they, their research showed that the news sites that are transparent about where their funding comes from uh, do news that, uh, that when you analyze the content is, 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 fa- is far more uh, fair and, uh, and the uh, sites that don't identify their funding seem to find that only the conservatives do wrong things or only the liberals do wrong things. So the lack of transparency can be the difference between a legitimate news site and, uh, 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 you know, an advocacy site. And so Knight Foundation has a requirement that uh, media uh, projects that we do uh, need to uh, reveal the sources of their funding. Nonprofit news sites need to tell the IRS in the United States every donor of $5,000 or more and so we said that information should be public, not just something for the government. And as it turns out, the best investigative news sites in the United States already do it. And the investigative news network, a, co- a collaborative of those sites, actually has a requirement that's even more strict of every uh, uh, donation of $1,000 or more uh, must be uh, revealed. As far as commercial organizations go, it's a real problem. Because back in the day, when everything was print, you could tell who the advertisers were. You could tell where most of the money was coming from. Now, with the kinds of business relationships that occur with sponsored uh, content and all these other things, many of the business relationships are hidden. So there was a project that we funded years ago called Consumer Web Watch, and I think you can still find the ethical guidelines online about that. Um, but I think it's, it's a, 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 there's real potential for the commercial organizations to develop all sorts of revenue streams that aren't aren't transparent, uh, and uh, I, you know, eventually that gets leaked, and that's really going to hurt them when it does. I think I just can't. Uh, could, you know what, I, Angela? I'm getting the rap, I'm getting the rap cue, Angela, from 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 our boss, and I I must surrender to him. Uh, I know um, for the first questioner, George was prepared to answer that question. Perhaps you two could have a word afterwards because uh, we are on a deadline here, as we always are in the media. I want, I'm sorry we didn't get to more questions. Uh, uh, Accost some of the panelists, if you will, afterwards. Eric Newton, George Brock, Angela Phillips, and Richard Sambrook, and thank you for your attention. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, people are going to follow you.